This is 69 The Podcast. I'm Dave Haynes. 69 has been covering the digital signage industry since the dawn of man, first online and now as a podcast. The goal on here is to make listeners aware of interesting companies, smart people, and new technology developments, all of them meaningful in making digital signage projects happen. I try to help listeners understand sometimes complicated subjects and why they should care. The podcasts are free and I try to get a new one out weekly, but things happen now and then. The 69 Podcast has been gratefully sponsored and supported since the start by Jeremy Gavin and the fine folks at ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. ScreenFeed makes beautiful-looking, totally automated content for signage and digital out-of-home networks. Check them out at ScreenFeed.com. 69 has been around since 2006, and the publication and podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which provides customer engagement solutions for business. You can find them at Spectrio.com. When a big LED video wall gets populated with fresh creative, the creatives and the people operating a display are likely going to have a conversation about the size of the finished file and how to move it, because there's a good chance the render file is huge and not something that's going to attach in an email. So I was intrigued as hell when a creative guy told me the video wall creative he'd produced for a project could fit on an old school floppy disk, because it was really just some lines of code. A lot of people in the digital signage ecosystem will already know Jim Nista. He started and ran the LA Creative Technology Shop in Steo before it was acquired by Elmo. Nista worked for his new masters for a while, but eventually went off on his own and is now spinning up a new boutique agency that's doing creative for visual projects. One of the things he's been actively working on is what he calls code painting, a big visual that gradually builds in front of viewers and then self-destructs, replaced by a new visual that again starts to build. You set the file and visual instructions, and then you forget it, as it will just run and run but always be a bit or a lot different. It's all done in programming instructions, and in the case of his current efforts, is focused on the familiar visual of flowers, but it can be other things like landscapes. Nista's work was one of three used for the 69 mixer at Infocom last month on a giant LED video wall. Having had a couple of explainers of what was going on on that piece, and the approach, I figured a podcast was the best way to help the industry understand what he's figured out and what he's delivering to clients. Hey Jim, can you explain what code painting is? Yeah, it's a fun new concept for me. I I know that uh, other people are doing some of the same types of things, but really uh, I have been trying to make a painting um, through either JavaScript or other coding techniques. I I started with uh, the more simple approach um, and the goal truly was to create something that you're watching a painting come to life mm-hmm. and it needs to be my, my, my own brief to myself was this needs to look good at every stage of the process. Um, sometimes a time lapse at the beginning is a little, what are we, what are we looking at here? And so it's been a, a fun uh, process for me to figure out a way to make something, not just paint itself through code, but to be interesting to look at through the entire process of how long, however long it takes, uh, 30 seconds to a minute is what I'm usually trying to come uh, towards. So, but it is truly just code. There's no images or videos or AI or machine learning or anything else like that. It's just a, a scripted process of creating a unique painting um, while you watch. And, and it, the way you were just, we were sitting in Orlando chatting about this and you were describing it to me and I was thinking, boy, this is a little bit over my head, but uh, it, it sounded like it starts with almost like an armature. You, you start with some curves and it just kind of builds from there. 
Yeah, it starts from a um, a very primitive uh, drawing. Um, it almost, in, in a sense, is like a child's drawing um, because the right, you know, some of the the early pieces and, and certainly some of the pieces that I've showed down in Orlando are flowers because those are shapes that are very recognizable to 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 our eyes. Um, we can spot a flower <laughs> type of shape almost as well as we can. Uh, determine like a, a human face style shape. I don't know why. I don't know the evolutionary reasons behind it. But as I realized that this is a pattern that we can determine uh, very easily. So behind the scenes, very, one of the very first things that this code does is generates out some, some curves. And if you think about uh, the shape of a curve, if you flip that shape, it makes sort of a petal or a leaf shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you make a simple curve and then flip it, you end up with a leaf shape or a petal shape. And if you take that and rotate it around in a certain way and put a dot in the center, our eyes say flower. Um, <clears throat> and, and we're really good at it, right? It's probably has mm-hmm. something to do with our ability to find food and all the other things that we do as humans. Um, but it's, uh, it becomes a, a, a shape that is very recognizable to us. And so once I have these very primitive drawn shapes sort of stored in memory, then I can have the real code takes over, which is uh, the work that I, I spent so much time on over the last year and a half of trying to make realistic looking paint strokes come out of the these primitive drawings that are sort of stored in memory. And that's been really the, the fun part of the project is to um, invent a way to create something that, you know, comes to life that way, but is truly just based on the most primitive, basic uh, line drawings you could possibly imagine. So there's some color encoded, encoded in that primitive. There's some, there's some rough shapes encoded in that primitive, but really it's just uh, um, very simple and then works from there to create a, a, a painting while you watch. So as we, we demoed this on uh, a, very large canvas down in Orlando, a 26 foot tall LED video wall, 155 uh, feet wide in terms of a curve. And you had little vignettes, uh, a number of these, I shouldn't say little, but they were substantially sized <laughs> maybe like 15 feet tall or something like that. But you had a number of them and essentially something would just build on this as you went and, and eventually kind of, show itself as a flower and evolve from there. Uh, how long do these things take to build? And uh, when they're finished building, is that it? Is, is that what stays on screen or does it kind of erase itself and you start over? Yeah. The, the idea, uh, the, the big idea that I, I started with for this project when, and just you know, going back one step is this really came from, I and before the pandemic, I started uh, trying to do oil, learn oil painting again. I had done it, you know, sort of in college and, and as art classes and things like that. And it was always a fun a p- passion. But I um, was struggling because when I was learning oil painting, especially during the pandemic, right, that was my hobby. <laughs> uh, I kept making paintings that were almost too realistic. And I challenged myself. I was like, I know how to code, too. So why can't I code? a paint stroke that can teach me 
how to be more loose. And, and it, this is where this, the genesis of this came from. And from there, I, I let this take on a life of its own. But it, along the way, along the process, I, I decided I don't want this to look as organic as it, as it, as it could. Yeah, the, the overall idea is that it creates a piece as you're watching it and then destroys it and creates a new one and then destroys that and creates a new one. And I, I had this, the idea came out of the, of, of, you know, so many video walls and we've all done them mm -hmm. uh, where you end up with a five minute loop of stock footage. And there's a lot of fatigue that you can imagine um, from employees who have to watch the screen every single day to, you know, guests and visitors having to see the same content over and over again. And, you know, just sort of the boring factor of, um, yeah, we have, we spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on this video while now we're going to spend a thousand dollars on content. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's so many projects that are like that. And so I was thinking, how can we come up with, you know, how can I put together something that is eternal content or at least, you know, doesn't need to be changed as often. And that, that was the, the genesis behind this is let it create a piece let it destroy it, let it make a new one, let it destroy that. And just eternally creating work that um, hopefully carries uh, some unique nature to it. And that's part of what this code carries is it not just will change the colors throughout the day and do sort of dramatic colors at sunrise and sunset and things like that, but it also changes its colors. And I even call it mood. It changes its mood throughout the year. And so for running this on a video wall, theoretically, um, it would, you know, be, uh, never the same image. It would be a lot of similarities from day to day. There'd be a lot of similarities. If you looked at something in one November versus next November, you'd see a lot of similarities, of course, but, mm -hmm. um, that content would constantly evolve and change throughout the, the day, the, the, the month, the seasons. And with the idea that you just can set, truly set this and forget about it, walk away and let this run um, on a video wall in, indefinitely and truly never see the same thing twice. And, so, and what's, the, what's the timeline? Like I went, imagine there are all kinds of variables and parameters you can set, but typically is it the sort of thing that builds over the space of four hours or four minutes? Yeah, yeah. I, I've been playing around with it and I, I love the idea of letting these things run even longer. <laughs> um, but uh, right now I've found, at least from people watching some of the early samples and some of the places that I've installed it, um, that shorter uh, time durations are better. So um, about a minute to create a piece and um, about uh, you know letting it linger for a little while after it's created and then destroying it. And that really does seem to be the sweet spot. Now, everything is just code. So if somebody said, I want it to run and build for four hours, then I can certainly do that. But what's funny is, is as I've been building this, um, because it's code, I can just run it in a web browser. And that mm -hmm. means I can run it on my phone. And so I've been able to uh, annoy friends, and <laughs> but demo this out in front of a lot of people as, uh, as I've been working on it. And I noticed very early on that the uh, slower pieces tended to, you know, it, it tended to have people looking away as opposed to looking at it. And so trying to capture a performance of creating this piece in within a minute and refining it and mm -hmm. almost getting the, um, the, the, the rough sketch done sooner rather than later, um, really 
that's how the the it started to feel like it was creating a a, a performance that people would want to watch. Um, and I, I think it, it can capture people's attention while they're transiting through space, which is a lot of how these um, these sort of corporate AV installations um, sort of take place. Nobody is expected just to stand there and look at it for a really long time. Right. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's tuned into that, but I do, do know that even running it in my own, uh, in my own space, I'm, I have a projector here and I can run it on a big wall from time to time just to see it. That sometimes when it is more ambient, letting it run, letting it build for several minutes is, uh, is a better approach. So, yeah, but in, in the public space, I think um, always seeing and when, when somebody first walks into the space, I don't know what point of the, the build of the painting it's going to be at, right? It's, it's just continual. And so the goal is to just have it always look good. Um, and that's been a very difficult goal to achieve. Because <laughs> you think about something at the very beginning of it, drawing, uh, it might be very abstract and it's hard for, for people to understand it. When you say it builds and then it destroys itself, what does that look like when it's in destruction mode, so to speak? It, I, I had to, uh, I've had to make the brushes move a lot faster during that mode so that um, it does attract attention, like something's being wiped out. But I also found that leaving a, a lot, not completely erasing the canvas, um, leaving a lot of the underlying or previous painting adds a lot of character as well. And so it, it sort of um, roughly uh, washes over with larger brushes and mm -hmm. uh, lighter brushes but it will leave uh, pieces of the previous painting there. Okay. And, um, and that's, that's, uh, that's a nice approach. There's now there's another, um, uh, another version of this that um, was more prevalent in, at the, uh, in Orlando that we ran there, which is more of a continual mode where rather than creating a image behind the scenes, it's creating a 3d image. Um, and using that instead. And so now that can constantly rotate or unfold mm. or evolve. Um, and so that's an alternative version. So in that one, the destruction is almost immediate where it is changing from, let's say, creating an orange flower to now evolving into creating a purple flower. That, that transition um, is a lot less noticeable than the uh, some of the other versions of this that I'm running that are creating one painting, building that painting, and then destroying it. So there's really there really are a few different ways that I've envisioned this, and one is truly continuous but evolving, where rather than building and painting and destroying, it's constantly painting, and what it's painting is constantly changing. Um, and so it's it's a uh, uh, a different approach, and and that process is. Um, uh, requires a little bit more horsepower. So I've, I've built one of these that I know from having worked at digital signage that we don't necessarily always have the fastest media players in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of these, um, I I've tuned it on, uh, sort of low cost and even previous generation media players. We're getting some really fast new, new media players that have GPUs built into them. So that's really going to be wonderful to take advantage of, but I built this before, those really available to me. And, um, and so, uh, some of the versions of this are really in, in designed for, um, a sort of solid state, uh, 
media player, like Brightside players or Spinetics players, that kind of thing is right. where I've been focused on tuning this around. You know, they're great HTML engines. They don't have a lot of memory. They don't have a lot of horsepower. But how can we do generative art on that type of hardware, which is so prevalent around the industry, right? Right. So this doesn't need to be on a big-ass media server. Yeah. You know, there's a version that does, and it certainly is. That's the version that I was running um, where in Orlando because, of mm -hmm. course, we had a lot horsepower there and a bigger screen to take advantage of. But yeah, there's, there's a version of this that's just pure JavaScript and runs on, um, you know, I've, I've tested it all over the place, including on a, sometimes I run it on a, on a 15 year old laptop and it runs fine there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've written for a number of years now about visualized data and that's kind of evolved uh, into the, the terminology of generative visuals and generative AI. But you, you kind of s skip past this really quickly when you're explaining things that this isn't AI. This, this is its own thing, right? Yeah. You know, it, I could have used some of machine learning techniques for this in terms of creating the underlying primitive image. Mm -hmm. um, but in rather than doing that, given that I'm dealing with somewhat simple shapes like flowers and, and landscapes and landscapes are hills and trees and things like that. Code can easily create um, things like trees and landscapes and, and those types of things. So it wasn't, it didn't make sense for me to train this in a uh, train a uh, machine learning model to build those primitives um, for me. And certainly machine learning wouldn't help with the process of sort of coming up with the painting itself. But mm -hmm. the idea of connecting this to live data or sensors in the space is really where this is headed. Um, I've uh, been, I've have other projects that are more interactive or immersive, especially involving um, the Azure Connect, the sort of where the Microsoft Connect from the Xbox days evolved mm -hmm. into this commercial tool toy. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so now, uh, some of the, the new work around this is reading what's happening in the space. So if somebody is standing in front of this and they're wearing red, uh, the flowers will be red. Um, and, and so those are some of them, the, the pieces that are coming out within this because yeah, it's generative. So, um, I can pull weather data. I can pull uh, any sort of information and add it to the mix of what I'm currently doing. Mm -hmm. Oddly, some of the early versions of this, they were intended and requested to be offline, completely isolated from the internet um, and run forever. And so really the only data that those have is the clock. Right. <laughs> they just know the time and the date, and that's the only data that they can do. So everything has been sort of pre-programmed in, um, and it's just sort of following its script forever, but there's so much randomness to it that it, it, it has a tendency to, to never repeat. For over a decade, ScreenFeed has been the reliable choice for beautifully designed, licensed content such as news and weather. We handle over 27 million requests a day to deliver dynamic content to 200,000 screens across the globe. Now we bring you ScreenFeed Connect, a no-code solution that makes complex content projects easy. Projects that used to take our designers and developers weeks became a to-do we could complete before lunch. The easy-to-use browser-based tool leverages pre-built data connections and ready-made widgets to give you the power to design with data. Create team member profiles, schedules, tenant directories, progress boards, featured products, or anything that leverages your data. 
Discover how Connect empowers you to complete projects faster at screenfeed.com. So one of the things that was interesting about walking around the exhibit hall floor at Infocom uh, recently was seeing how uh, a lot of the big display guys, particularly the LED guys, were using uh, generative art on the displays instead of just like stock yeah. Uh, stock video and so on, which was what happened for a whole bunch of years. Uh, it, the sort of thing that uh, Rafik Anadol pioneered, uh, there may be another artist as well, but that's the one that most people would know. Uh, is, is that the sort of thing you, you could conceivably do with this as well? Or is, or is it just kind of a, like a different track? No, no. There, the, a lot of the work that, um, that he's doing and I don't mean to trivialize it because, you know, it, when I see some of the work that he's doing, he's pulling in these massive data sets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the work itself is running through software that I use as well, like Touch Designer. And a lot of the um, the same type of effects are happening. What, what he's built and a lot of people are copying, unfortunately, right? Yeah. Unfortunately for, <laughs> for him. But what he's built is, um, in some respects kind of a two-part process. He's pulling all of this data together and then from there using this his own code to render it. Um, and and that that a lot of that is done in software like Touch Designer, Unity, those types of applications. Unreal Engine is where a lot of that's happening. But yeah, I, I think that one challenge that we're facing is um, like an artist like him, his style is so identifiable. But as I was walking around the show floor, I'm seeing essentially what are either ripoffs, direct ripoffs of his work or artists just copying it. And inspired by. Inspired by, yes. But, <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, and again, I don't mean to trivialize what he's doing, but there are effects built into these software applications that sort of mimic his style. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, he was the first guy to come up with it and use those those tricks and techniques and everything else. But a lot of people can just sort of follow along a, you know, 30 minute YouTube uh, 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 tutorial and mimic a lot of the work that is coming from him and then some of these other generative artists as well. So it is sort of danger in that mm-hmm. doing, working this way, um, it becomes uh, somewhat easy if your style becomes popular to mimic it. And it's sad to see that so many companies are just either hiring somebody to, you know, copy this artist's style or just outright taking the work directly from, uh, you know, other videos that he's published online. Mm-hmm. So, but it is, it, you know, it's unfortunate it happens. It's nicer to see though, because, uh, you know, uh, most of the time what we see at these is, you know, somebody running movie trailers or big worse, buck bunny sort of or big buck bunny. Yeah. Those, yeah. those, um, blender, um, foundation free videos. And those are very well produced, but they're now 15 years old. And, you know, it's like the, the blender's gotten better in the last 15 years, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, so it's nice to see some, some, uh, a little bit more creativity around the show floor, but at the end of it, it's not creative because a lot of it's just, Hey, look at this popular artist. Let's take his work, <laughs> you know? And, um, there's a fine line with that. I, I certainly would love to have some of my demos made available, but you know, at the same point, if we start seeing it over and over again, or people are, are copying it, it's nice form of flattery, but mm-hmm. it's also, um, you know, dangerous form of flattery as well. <laughs> one, one thing that uh, you mentioned when you were 
finalizing the stuff for this big video wall was you said that the actual code package, uh, scripting or however you want to describe it, and you'll do a better job than me, obviously, was so light that you, you could have loaded this on a couple of, or on a floppy disk, which for uh, the, the youngsters <laughs> out there, look, look it up and you'll see what a floppy disk is. It's the icon that we use when we uh, save things on our on our mm-hmm. regular software, right? <laughs> Not that anybody's <laughs> seen one in a while. Yeah, you know, um, it, you know it, that that canvas that we were working on in for the Orlando project is uh, seventeen eighteen thousand pixels by three thousand. You know, a lot a lot of real estate. Um, yeah, and uh, of course, this was rendered out. So you know given the nature of the project and everything. But if that had been delivered generatively, um, it's just shader code. Uh, the, that project was built using um, a, a concept called GLSL shaders. And it's, it's code. It's um, sort of a, a, weird, a weird code language. It borrows a lot from a lot of different <laughs> uh, types of, of scripting languages, but it's for creating visuals like that through code. Mm-hmm. And the files that created those those flowers the individual uh, uh, code for some of those was nine kilobytes right you know that kind of thing and it's um just because it's just a little script that's running and doing right. all this 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 uh this 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 creative but what what's funny in there is that um along the way as i was initially building some of these projects like i would go into um graphic software like you know, Adobe Illustrator, for example, I go into that graphic software and I, I hand draw what I thought a paintbrush should look like. And so now I've got this, this little chunk, not, not really code, but a vector graphic of what a paintbrush should look like. And over time, all of those little things that I did, I took them out and said, no, I need to code what a paintbrush looks like. I can't be relying on having drawn something in advance. And so all of that, all of these asset files that were initially part of this just to sort of save a step or move faster were removed and just replaced with with code so there really aren't any there's just one file that that builds that you know builds these experiences that just has to be launched in and played back some of those are are you know uh, html and and run in a web browser some of them are not html and and would need a gpu to run on um, in order to uh to, to render it out properly. But yeah, they're really very small um, files that, that run. So, you know, they're obviously if it's running in a web browser, the digital science is going to be playing its HTML content mm-hmm. and the file that is uploaded to, for example, a bright sign player is a few kilobytes. Um, it's a, it's a fun, different process versus, yeah. um, you know, hundreds of gigabytes files and, uh, or these large data set files that we see from some of these artists where they're saying, oh, I, I built this uh, data set anal- analyzer that goes through, you know, a million photos of the city to create this art. And I'm looking at it going, that's cool. I, you know, created a, a <laughs> some random noise channels of, uh, to get my data <laughs> to generate my randomness rather than having to go through millions of photos or whatever else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a different, it's certainly a different approach. And um, makes makes for fun stories as far as having uh, not to deliver all of these massive files. I've had some I've had some surprise along the way. It's like 
I don't think you sent me everything. Like, yes, I did. <laughs> Just <laughs> launch it on the BrightSign player and we'll see what it does. <laughs> so. so operationally, there are implications, it seems, in terms of uh, data transmission times and uh, you know bandwidth consumption, although that's not a big an issue as it used to be, and local storage, things like that. Are, are there other kind of operating implications or advantages of going down this path? Um, yeah, I, I think the, the biggest advantage is just, you know, being able to promise a client that the content's not going to get stale, right? Yeah. And, you can set it and yeah. truly forget it. <clears throat> yeah. You know, and, and I think that, 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 uh, that, that provides a big, uh, advantage to it. Um, there's some other, at, you know, challenges to this and, and certainly some of the projects that I've done where we, after a while, we realized that that particular circumstance and that particular hardware is not really conducive to running generative. So we'll just render out a movie, um, you know, and in those cases I've rendered out eight hour long movies that, you know, I just let my computer do the generative work and record it and then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, upload a big long movie. So that sort of, you know, defeats the purpose and the idea of having to send a nine kilobyte file. And now all of a sudden that's turned into a, a big long movie. But for the most part, no, there's really not too much to, to consider with this, especially on the, the simpler uh, version of this code, which certainly is not, you know, as dramatic as what we're seeing in museums and some of the early, uh, the early days of um, some of the generative artists that are starting to get really, really well noticed. But, you know, I'm also thinking in terms of um, the real world applications of this. We have a lot of low cost, low power media players out there in the world mm -hmm. that are well suited towards this and, um, you know, can can handle a project like this without overheating or anything else like that. So there's certainly that that was that was a big driving factor for me that I know a lot of other artists wouldn't really even think to put limitations on themselves like that. Mm -hmm. They would just sort of think what, you know, I don't care. I don't care about the technology and, and then suddenly create a project that requires, you know, multiple of the latest, greatest expensive GPUs, right? <laughs> on a Windows, on a Windows uh, device, which nothing wrong with Windows, but, you know, as we all know, it's not the biggest friend in digital signage. It's right. a noisy operating system and it wants to make its presence known. And what we're looking for most of the time is all of that stuff to be in the background as far as possible. So is, is this something that you came up with or was it technology that existed and some people were using and you've just, you know, kind of adopted it and done your own thing with it? I think in, in terms of the work that I'm doing with like GLSL shaders and the more modern GPU process, I'm, I'm coming into uh, a workflow that other uh, people have been pioneering. And mm -hmm. so I, I'm just um, getting my, you know, more than my feet wet with that, but it really is a newer, but on the other side with building generative art on, you know, essentially um, like think about some of the, the last generation bright sign players, right? We're talking about devices that were designed in 2015, 2016, right? You know, so mm -hmm. seven year old already, um, you know, intended for solid state and not necessarily one, you know, no GPU, um, that idea to create generative art on, on some of these, um, uh, you know, older devices, I think is, is new. And I have not seen anybody building content that way. 
Right. Um, I don't know why you would, right? If you if you start on a project like this and you don't create limitations for yourself, you're going to want the best GPU. You're going to want the best system to run it on. You're going to, you know, you're going to aim for the highest caliber. And here I am going, no way. I got to aim for <laughs> the these devices that are out of date and maybe, um, you know, not necessarily, uh, not at all the fastest horsepower, but I know I can count on them. I know I can rely on them. And I know that they're going to do what part of this project's goal was for me, which is to run indefinitely, right? To, to be able to create something like this. I think another idea that, that's always popped into my head, and just as an odd you know, way, you go to a, um, a contemporary art uh, museum or gallery and you see audiovisual art fairly often, right? It's a big part of it. And um, I was at, uh, a couple years ago, I went and, and went to one of those big uh, uh, art shows where they have the, the galleries come and, and you know, I, I bought the tickets and I decided I wanted to go see this. Like and, the Art Basel one in Miami? Yeah, Art Basel Freeze is the one that I went to. Okay. And um, I noticed a lot of the AV was very poorly running, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so here's, they're trying to sell us a... A million dollar art project and, and there's you know a bright sign player on the floor with cables and the av guys and just dropping frames shooting it yeah you know it's just like this isn't this isn't right you know this this i know that device i know what it's capable of. i know it could pull this off so a lot of that was what what happens when somebody you know invests in one of these pieces or wants a, a, a work of art in their space um now they have to keep it running and they have to have an AV tech constantly going out there and patching it up and fixing it and keeping it going and all the other things. And it really started to make sense as you look at older AV art installations, right? There's a lot of AV artists from the eighties and nineties who used CRT um, devices, right? How do they, how do these museums keep that stuff running? And so Mm -hmm. it was also just sort of a, a practical idea for me having an understanding of the AV industry to think as an artist doing this work, I have to prepare for that. Who knows if anything I do will ever have longevity or maybe nobody will even look at it. But, you know, it was an idea from the beginning of, I, I want to, I want to help solve these things. I've, 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 been that guy on the floor fixing the bright sign player. And I, and I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to create that problem for, for somebody else. And so it, it was an idea just about born out of seeing how a lot of this um, audiovisual art becomes a technical nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. And how can I do something that is from the beginning sort of avoiding those, those technical challenges, right? Uh, you know, I, I've done projects that until the pandemic, like I had bright sign players that had been on and running for 10 years for some projects. Um, and, you know, if I can count on a device to just run that way, that, that, that makes this um, creative all, you know, all the more, um, more impactful, uh, maybe mm-hmm. more, you know, uh, at least, at least easier to operate into the future. And, and um, just a, a, a fun little goal of myself to say, how can I challenge my, uh, this to do something that attracts people that is interesting to look at, but then also is, you know, capable of running on much, much older devices. So, so is this a product? Uh, like a, you, you've had a design, an agency in the past, you sold to Elmo, 
uh, you kind of went off on your own doing your own thing and you're, you're kind of spinning up a, an agency again, but is this something that if I could ring you tomorrow and say, yeah, I want five for five different venues, I could buy it or how does it, how does that work? Yeah, that's, um, part of the idea for me is, uh, I, I wanted to do something as a creative project, but I also wanted to find a commercial space for it too, right? It's no Mm -hmm. fun just to build something and then walk away from it. Um, and, uh, knowing and having a background in the commercial AV space, it is, it's designed for that, especially the more, um, the, the, the more modern version that, that is a little bit more active. Um, both of them are really designed for the commercial AV space. And yeah, I've been working already with, um, some architectural firms, I think that they they are the ones that are going to get this um, right away. But then also there yeah. are some AV companies that are really specialists in building video walls in corporate residential spaces, right? And I think mm-hmm. the residential spaces are going to be a, a, a big, big upcoming uh, space for this. And, and also, I, I think this is another factor around this type of work that it lends itself to is... Most cities and, you know, I'm just going to think North America, um, most larger cities in North America have a percentage of a project's budget that has to go to art. And I noticed, I've noticed more and more a lot of LED walls getting put in to sort of satisfy that piece of the art budget. And so if I can productize this around Mm -hmm. some of the you know, commercial AV companies that I know that are getting those projects, right? They can say, oh, we spent all this money on art, but they were putting in an LED wall. They don't necessarily, now they're going to, now, you know, you know exactly what the next step is. They're going to put, you know, um, stock video on it and call it art, right? And so yeah. if we can have something that is readily available somewhat off the shelf, and and I mean somewhat in that, no, I, I don't know too many clients who are going to just, want this exactly as is there this is custom creative everyone's going to want a little bit of customization to it and i always have known that in any of the template type projects that i've done is that there's a piece of this that has to be still be within the client's control that they feel that they drove some of the creative and they wanted it certain colors or or whatever and i've i've left that as part of this but yes it, it really truly is intended for um this commercial av space as a somewhat off-the-shelf product that you can just pick up and install into this um, as the primary visuals on an LED wall. Right. And there are times, some of the work that's being done by these generative artists, you know, it's amazing and everything else, but it's also, they're six-figure projects. I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you give any kind of sense of, how this fits, like are, are people listening is going, that would be amazing, but I don't have a half a million dollars to, <laughs> you know, buy yeah, this original creative. A lot of that comes with the name, right. You know, around that. And, and once mm-hmm. you get, you know, to be a well-known and well, you know, well, uh, identifiable artist, uh, suddenly, you know, the work, the, the prices go way up. Right. I'm not there yet. And I, my focus is right now just on, a, um, you know, a, a lot of projects have a tendency to fit into that, you know, that ma- magic sweet spot of the 10K budget, right? The $10,000 content budget. Mm-hmm. They're spending 
$250,000 on the LED <laughs> in the installation and the content is still sort of in the afterthought realm. And that, right. that's really the, the other idea that I've had around this is pegging it into that, what's very common, but when, you know, I'll get a phone call, we have an LED wall that's being built. This is the type of content, not usually, usually clients aren't asking for generative, right? Um, but, you know, they come back and they're looking for some sort of animated visuals, motion graphics or mm-hmm. edited video loops. And, and it typically comes in as a budget of around $10,000 for getting that content pulled together. And that's what I was aiming for with this is that it would fall into that, that sweet spot. If somebody's looking for more or more customization, um, certainly that's possible and that would impact price, but to just sort of prep this and get it ready um, to go for, uh, you know, your average um, installation is intended to be easy and also not, you know, uh, half a million dollars. <laughs> right. At least not yet. No. And, you know, and, and <laughs> even then, um, it, you know, the, there's, if you reach that stage as an artist, there's another fun factor that comes along with it is now you have like gallery exclusivities and all kinds of other things. And so, you know, while it's, it's fun, uh, you're also now those, those big tickets are being shared amongst a lot of different, uh, greedy hands. And so you right. see something sell for half a million dollars. The artist might've gotten, uh, uh, 20% of that. And mm-hmm. as, as sad as that is, um, you know, it, there's a lot of hands that get into those pies. So at least for now, by focusing this around a space that I know better, I don't, I don't necessarily know that, that gallery space so well, but I know the commercial AV space a lot better and right. focusing into that, it just makes a lot more sense to me. And, you know, I, I do, uh, interact, um, with commercial art brokers. Um, and that's, uh, been happening now for about the last, um, six months or so. And, but that again, that space is is not the same as um, the you know sort of commercial sure. art gallery space, which is um, very interesting. <laughs> I bet. So, if people want to know more about this, how can they find you? Well, my website is um, getting redone. I'm in the process of <laughs> making it prettier, but I haven't put any of this work on there yet, or mm-hmm. very little I put on there. Um, and so this is uh, all new for me as I'm getting uh, this up this summer. But yeah, it's uh, it's nista.co, nista.co, and um, that's uh, that's where I'll, I'll be enhancing that over the, the next couple uh, weeks to be showing some more of the work that I'm doing. I have a few projects that are wrapping up all around the same time, so it makes sense for me to get those wrapped up, get some photographers out to those locations, and then um, get uh, this content on my website. If you look at it today, it's uh, not necessarily showing off all the generative work. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. That was uh, terrific. I, I, I now understand it a little bit better, although I, <laughs> I'm not ready to sit down and try to do it myself. No, it's fun. I appreciate this and opportunity to talk a little about it a lot more. It's uh, I'm, I'm having a blast with it. I can't imagine, I can't wait to see what else is, is uh, out there, you know, as I get more involved with this work. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe you learned a thing or two. If you're new to 69, it's a podcast that's been around since 2016. You can click around the archive and find hundreds of conversations with smart industry people. If you're new to digital signage, you need to be reading 169 at 16-9.net. You'll find more than 8,000 posts by me and expert guest writers about this industry. 169 is not a press release republishing mill, like a lot of this stuff out there. If something makes it on 169, that means it matters in some way to the business. 
Everything about 69 is free. Great sponsors make my work possible, and the key one here is ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. Check out all the curated and automated content available at ScreenFeed.com. 16.9, the blog and the podcast, are now owned by Spectrio, which does customer engagement solutions, most of that digital signage, for all kinds of businesses. You'll find them in the Tampa area and online at Spectrio. That's Spectrio.com. You'll find me working out of a sunny back room in my house, located outside Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Haynes.